Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, China wants to meet Canada halfway. Does that mean they're giving back hostages? The Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum celebrating the 75th anniversary of D-Day with a flyover 12:10 June 6th over the Canadian Open. And plastics. Do we really need them? Can you cut back? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We've talked for months. Uh, well, obviously, uh, since the detainment of, uh, of the Huawei CFO on an, ex- an extradition warrant, followed by uh, the abduction of the two Michaels in China, and, and, and this, this uh, war has just uh, gone on back and forth, uh, this public relations nightmare, uh, which is very realistic for two Canadians that are, that are in uh, Chinese custody right now. Uh, we've seen it affect uh, canola. We're hearing now that it could affect meat inspection and such. Where do we go from here? H- how do we move out of this? Uh, and odd that uh, the headlines today are China wants to end impasse with Canada by meeting halfway. Uh, Fascinating, uh, or is it a change of events or just the next step in this dance? Uh, We want to bring in uh, Hugh Stevens' uh, recent uh, article that he penned uh, for the School of Public Policy, China Rewards and China Punishes, What Lessons Can Canada Learn from the Meng Wanzhou Affair? And uh, let's bring in Hugh Hugh Stevens now, Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada Executive Fellow, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary Fellow, Global, uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Hugh is with us now. Hugh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. That's quite a mouthful. <laughs> it is. It is. We want to get it all in there, though. So after uh, months and months and months and months and months of bullying from China, and, I mean, we've seen the reaction uh, uh, that China has had towards Canada, less so towards the United States, detaining the two Canadians and such. Why meeting halfway now? And as you put in your, in, in your column, a total reset. Well, I'm not sure what the Chinese mean by meeting halfway. I think they made it pretty clear that for them, uh, it means that Canada has to back down and uh, send Ms. Meng back, uh, regardless of the process that's going on uh, in Canada. That may, in fact, be the eventual outcome, but uh, as we've said many times, there's a process here that has to be followed. Um, I understand the Chinese ambassador is leaving. He's actually got a promotion. I guess the hard line that he's been uh, spreading around in Canada has uh, has earned him some favor in Beijing, and, and at least according to reports in the press, he's moving on. Um, and, then, you know, at some point, uh, I'm not sure when, I would rather it be sooner rather than later, Canada and China are going to have to pick up the pieces. So I suppose this might be uh, a way of indicating that once this is passed, uh, you know, we can kind of resume. And I guess eventually Canada and China will resume some kind of uh, more normal type of relationship. But I must say, I think a lot of damage has been done in this period and uh, things will never be quite the same. Uh, you're talking about uh, the ambassador getting a promotion. Was it a real promotion? Do we know that? Or is it that's, is that the way it's being sold? And, and can, can Canadians must be happy to see a change of face? No? Well, I guess if you consider being ambassador to France, 
a promotion over being ambassador to Canada. It's a promotion. Maybe if you think that's a downgrade step, you could mm. you could look at it that way. But uh, you know, France is an important country, obviously. So I think, generally speaking, uh, it's uh, it, 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 at, at the very least, it's a sideways move, if not a not a perceived uh, step up for him. Uh, but I mean, uh, it does offer an opportunity, perhaps, if uh, if a new uh, ambassador comes to perhaps change the tone somewhat. Um, although I'm not particularly optimistic. I mean, I think maybe this particular individual was uh, certainly out there and and uh, delivering some tough messages that uh, were rather grating to the ears. But uh, it would seem that uh, he was on script insofar as Beijing is concerned. Why would he be promoted at this time, considering where we are in these negotiations? Is that good or bad? Why would China do that? I'm not sure that there's a direct connection here. Um, I mean, who knows? Uh, but you know, with in the in in the world of diplomatic assignments, there are many factors that that uh, are taken into account. Presumably, there's an opening in Paris. So I, I have to confess, I don't know who the Chinese ambassador is to France, whether that person is retiring or going somewhere else. But that's my assumption, and so uh, that position has got to be filled. And uh, um, and, and again, I say these are unconfirmed reports that I, j- I just read this morning, but I, I gather that uh, they're probably accurate. So one can assume that as part of the sort of the normal routine of posting, he is moving. Uh, I, I, j- I just don't think there's, there's, a, there's a lot of significance there other than the fact that this is, uh, you know, part of the, the internal personnel cycle of the Chinese foreign ministry. So uh, the use of the term total reset really is inaccurate. Um, they're not looking to reset. They're looking for us to reset because a total reset, you, you sort of get the impression that we're going to lie everything down and then start all over again. Uh, that being said, pretty tough when there's people being detained in each country. Yeah, I, um, well, the, to- the term total reset, the only t- person I've heard actually use that term or has been reported was Mr. Shear, who's talked about a total reset. Others have talked about a careful uh, recalibration. Uh, they're talking about uh, some sort of 50-50. Clearly, the, the, some of the assumptions on which the relationship has been based for many years have to be questioned, I think. And so do we need to go back to square one? Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's the case, but I certainly think that uh, both sides need to uh, examine the assumptions in which we've we've had this relationship. You know, a lo- for a long time, and it may have been uh, wishful thinking, but there's been this sort of aura of quote-unquote friendship around Canada-China relations. And in fact, you referred to the article that uh, that I wrote. And my, I guess my position is that uh, you know friendship is part of the uh, substance of diplomatic relations, the grease that uh, that uh, that keeps the wheels churning and so forth. And uh, we. I don't think many people that followed China closely were deluded by the fact that uh, by, by the fact that Canada and China were particularly close friends. Countries pursue their interests. China pursues its interests. Canada pursues its interests to the extent that uh, warm and fuzzy uh, toasts and, 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 and language and those sort of things help move things forward. That's fine, but let's not kid ourselves. When push comes to shove, countries follow their interests, and that couldn't be any plainer than what's happened with respect to Canada and China over these last few months. So is Canada learning from that? I mean, we've discussed this many times. Uh, uh, How are we viewing China now? How has our perception changed? Well, if anybody thought that we had some kind of special relationship with China, those scales must surely have fallen from their eyes. 
China has, uh, I think you use the term bullied. I think it, it, it's, it's an accurate term. China has leaned very hard. It's pushed Canada around. Uh, it's exerted leverage, um, which is what all countries do in, 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 in diplomacy. But China has been particularly uh, sharp-edged about this. And, of course, the offensive part, the part that I find the most highly offensive, is to personalize it by seizing individual hostages and making them the uh, uh, you know the co-celeb here, so that's uh, that. That I mean, I think that's what's made things particularly difficult. Why do you think we're hearing this sort of tone now? You mean in terms of uh, uh, bringing we, we, things together, trying to, to you know whether you're a reset or whatever you want to call it? Why is this happening now? Well, I think uh, on on the Canadian side, uh, there's frustration, and so there's an assumption that uh, you know we should reevaluate some of these things. The Chinese ambassador, one quote he had was that uh, you know the, those who tied the hands should untie them. Uh, well, frankly, I would. I wish I'd been in the room because I would have said, actually, I agree with you, Ambassador. And the and the people that tied the hands in this particular case was the United States. This is basically uh, collateral damage that Canada is suffering as uh, in return for the the trade confrontation and the technology confrontation between the U.S. and China. And the U.S. has been particularly aggressive, not just in the case of personalizing the uh, the case against Ms. Meng, but of course the not only blocking Huawei from 5G, but now blocking all U.S. companies and non-U.S. companies that have U.S. components from supplying Huawei. I mean, this if it doesn't look like an attempt to drive them out of business, I don't know what it is. Can any of this issue between Canada and China, can any of it move forward while we are still holding the Huawei CFO? Um... I think that uh, you know there, there can be some kind of dialogue. We can try to uh, to, to have discussions, but I think you're right that uh, this is the the sort of logjam. If we dislodge this log, things will start to happen. But uh, how you dislodge it and follow the rules that we uh, have proclaimed very loudly we're going to follow is extremely difficult. And uh, you know it could take a lot longer than I think everybody thinks is desirable. But that's just the way the system works. So what does eventually happen once or if she is extradited uh, is that it for us is it now the US problem well I mean there are two outcomes well actually there are three outcomes she's extradited she's not extradited yeah. or she gives up the fight against extradition um, so any of those things can happen um, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that there wouldn't be some kind of a deal struck still between the U.S. and China where she might agree to uh, go to the U.S. and accept some kind of a, of a plea bargain where she'd pay a fine and she wouldn't actually personally go to jail. But who knows, because things could get a lot worse between China and the U.S., in which case that scenario is off the table. But it's certainly one scenario. The other is that the Canadian process, and there's various elements to this, including her lawyers now, uh, accusing the Canadian government of not following due process in the terms of her arrest. So there's lots of complications there. That remains to be seen what happens. Or, as you say, eventually she might be extradited to the U.S., in which case um, there's not much that China can do to Canada in terms of influencing that outcome. Presumably that would just be part of the ongoing struggle between uh, the U.S. and China over technology, over trade, over a million and one things. So... Uh, all of these scenarios are still out there, and it's very difficult to know exactly which way it's going to go. So really, uh, with the relationship between Canada and China and the headlines today, really nothing's changed here. I don't think very much has changed. I mean, 
I suppose it's a slight ratcheting down of the tone, but, uh, you know, next week uh, Ambassador Lou could come up with another hard-line statement. So it's sort of uh, you know, good cop, bad cop. I don't think we should be grasping at too many straws uh, uh, as, as a result of this one particular statement. Is this happening because now the U.S. are becoming more and more involved? Vice President Sp- uh, Pence spoke up about this when he was in Ottawa. Uh, a while ago, uh, could, could it be that uh, the, the, the China is seeing the alliance between Canada and the United States more clearly? Um, you know, I don't think the Americans have been particularly helpful on this file. Of course, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. They have a number of issues that they're dealing with with China. This, I guess, is part of it, but I doubt if it's a top priority for them. So I think it's just part of the, the, the broader picture. There's still too many, it's, there are many moving parts here, and there's still too many unknowns, I think, to be able to predict which way this is going to go. Uh, why is China not detaining an American or two? Well, I guess because they don't want to further inflame the situation between the U.S. and China. I mean, they're taking other actions. Uh, You know, they're now threatening to withhold the supply of rare earths and so on. So there's a range of things that they can do to personalize it in the way they've done with Canada would, uh, would, would make things that much worse. Um, now, you know, so I, I, I can't speak for what their calculations are. I mean, I guess that's still a, a possibility. Um, and if they do it, of course, it will send a real chill uh, to American investors and American companies in China. But, uh, I mean, frankly, what I find quite galling is that they didn't hesitate to do that with Canada, but they're thinking yeah. twice about the consequences of doing it with the United States. I wish they thought about that when they moved in on the two Michaels. That was exactly my next point. How do you think the U.S. would react if they took two Americans? Well, the U.S. is not Canada. Um, I, I, I guess, given the, the state of the current uh, U.S. administration, and particularly uh, President Trump, whose modus uh, vivendi seems to be, or modus operandi rather, seems to be, uh, you hit me, I'll hit you back twice as hard. Uh, you, you sue me, I'll sue you back twice as hard. I can assume that from the, the administration's perspective, they would have, uh, they, you know, they would have hit back. Would that have been a very good idea? Well, they, they have hit back in terms of all these tariffs. But all of these, uh, the, the, so, these tariff wars, of course, of course they hurt China, but they hurt the United States as well. So how much pain is the United States prepared to suffer to, quote-unquote, teach the Chinese a lesson, the lesson that, in fact, it, it's hurting them as well? And I think we have to accept the fact that uh, the United States is not Canada. Canada is not the United States. The United States has bigger cards or more cards to play in this relationship. Uh, as we've talked about before, uh, obviously this extradition trial is going to take a long period of time. Um, could they get some sort of trade deal done while this is still in limbo, or do you think one will affect the other? You mean can, uh, China and the U.S.? Yes. Get a yeah. trade deal? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not looking very good right now. I mean, they've had 11 rounds of talks. There are no new talks scheduled at the moment. Um uh, but, you know, Mr. Trump is fighting a, fighting a lot of fires. I mean, we saw that yeah. the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs were taken off because they were preoccupied with China. Now he's threatening to put tariffs on Mexico. Uh, I mean, who knows what will happen, whether he will back down. I would assume that there are lots of people in the U.S. that would like to see these talks resume, would like to find some kind of accommodation. Uh, whether that's possible, particularly from what I understand, the Chinese had uh, reached a certain point and then they went back to check their mandate and they came back and sort of watered down what they, uh, what the Americans thought they'd agreed to, which was the reason for the, 
the, you know, the resumption of, uh, uh, of, of further tariffs on Chinese goods. So uh, who's going to blink first? That's, uh, it's, it's a good question. I think we'll just have to wait and see. A trade deal, will that come before the Huawei CFO's extradition trial? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it could come. It could come quite quickly. I mean, a lot of the groundwork has been there. I mean, was it two, three weeks ago we expected that this would be concluded, and then suddenly the wheels fell off. Uh, but those wheels could be put back on. There are a couple of uh, of key points. But I must say, the way the rhetoric's been going, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not looking like it's moving in the direction of resolution. It's looking like it's moving in the direction of both sides becoming more and more dug in and and uh, getting involved in uh, tit for tat exchanges. Does Donald Trump hold the key? Does he have the solution? Well, I'm not sure Donald Trump holds the entire key because, as we've seen. The U.S. government is a is a multifaceted yeah. uh, operation, and uh, or, I mean, and the best example are these uh, threatened tariffs on Mexico, where the Congress has to approve and is making all kinds yeah. of noises that it doesn't think that's a very good idea. But you know, the the U.S. administration, the White House, in combination with the bureaucracy and the Congress, at the end of the day, the position that the United States the United States takes with regard to China will have a very significant impact on Canada-China relations, no question. Uh, this investigation, from what I understand, has been going re- regarding the Huawei CFO has been going on for a long time and, and dates back, I believe, to about 2001. Um, is there any way that these two issues are resolved separately or will they come, they just inevitably become blended as one? And, and as you said, Trump or no Trump, if, if, if the U.S. state is, is interested in getting her, they're going to get her. Well, yeah, I mean, there has been this judicial process that's going on for quite a while, and it relates to Iran sanctions. Some people have said, well, why is Canada enforcing U.S. sanctions on Iran? These are not the recent sanctions. These are sanctions that go back several years. Uh, I think U.N. sanctions to which we subscribe. So, I mean... I don't get into the legalities of it because I'm not a lawyer, but there's, you know, there's arguments on this both both sides as to whether there was a there's a, there's a legal case here, whether there's a political case. Clearly, it, it, it's it's a bit of both. So, um, you could say, would, do they want to sort of get her? I think what they want to do is they want to get Huawei. They want to uh, teach Huawei a lesson. Um, arresting the CFO, CFO and giving, putting her in jail, which, by the way, is, is pretty unusual for a, a commercial dispute of this sort. It's, it's, it's highly unusual, in, in fact, which uh, is the fact that it's not escaped the Chinese. Um, that's part of it. Uh, the 5G is part of it. Cutting off Huawei suppliers is part of it. Leaning on Huawei. Um, that's part of this technology war that's going on. What will the outcome be? Well, one outcome will certainly be that uh, China will... And, and Huawei and others will no doubt say, well, okay, if, uh, if that's the way it's going to be, we're going to have to develop our own technology completely independent of the U.S. and break those supply chains because uh, we're vulnerable. So that's probably going to be one outcome. In fact, if the intent is to slow down China's technology development, the result will probably be just exactly the opposite. Hmm. Hugh Stevens, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hugh, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many memorials going on over the next couple of days in regard to uh, the anniversary of D-Day tomorrow, June 6, 1944. Allied invasions of Normandy in in Operation Overlord during World War II. 
of course, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. To talk more about all of this, Dave Rohr is with us, President and CEO, Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, on the line with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Glad to be with you. How significant is this anniversary for those that hang out around the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum? Well, it's very significant, Scott. We say every day here is Remembrance Day, but there was only one June 6, 1944, which was really the major turning point in World War II, where the Allies started to uh, actually uh, invade uh, and, and regain France and start to take back a occupied Europe. It was the turning point. It's a, it's a big day. How does the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum celebrate this? Well, last Saturday we had an 850-person D-Day gala with the world-famous uh, Glenn Miller Orchestra and the Argyle and Sutherland Regiment pipes and drums and, wow. and a whole bunch of other things. And that was and we had uh, 19 World War II veterans and five D-Day veterans, one born in Hamilton, Lieutenant General Richard Romer. And uh, it was a tremendous evening. That was how we started. And then, of course, tomorrow... We're going to fly over the uh, Canadian Open, the first mm. round uh, at 12:10 over the Hamilton Golf and Country Club, with uh, our own D-Day veteran airplane C-47 Dakota, which actually dropped uh, jumpers out of the beaches in Normandy 75 years ago to the day. So this plane, what? Tell us some history about this plane. Well, this plane was uh, sent over to the war effort in 1940, uh, early 44. It was uh, sent to Royal Air Force Squadron 233. It flew on D-Day with Royal Air Force Squadron 233 with a Canadian pilot flying it. And then right after D-Day, it was transferred to the Royal Canadian Air Force 437 Squadron, which is based in 8-Wing in Trenton. And it flew 208 operational missions in World War II with 437 Royal Canadian Air Force Squadron. Then it was brought back and flew in service with the Royal Canadian Air Force till 1970. And then it ended up as a government airplane doing remote sensing for Department of Environment. And we were able to acquire the airplane in 2010, and uh, we indicated that we would restore the airplane back to its 1944 livery and that we would fly the airplane as a 437 uh, RCAF airplane in honor of uh, its service with 437 in World War II and, of course, as our D-Day veteran. So mm -hmm. it's all been painted. It's all back as it was in 1944 with fresh engines and new propellers and new avionics, and we're just thrilled to lead the formation tomorrow in, in an airplane that flew over Normandy 75 years ago. So, again, tell us what type of plane this is. This is a what they call a Dakota DC-3 is the, is the yeah. civil name for it, mm -hmm. uh, but the military designation with the big cargo doors was C-47, right, uh, Dakota right. C-47. Right. So what must it be like to, to be around a piece of equipment like this, to think about where it's been and what it's seen? Well, you know, it's just awesome. And when we started to do the restoration of the airplane, uh, what we found on the inside of the cabin was people, uh, soldiers and airmen had signed their names yeah. and the date going back to 1944 uh, and where, when they were in the airplane, either coming back as wounded from France back to England or whether they were coming from uh, bringing uh, armament and supplies back into France. Uh, they actually signed their names in pencil and to find those treasures, it was just uh, it was unbelievable. And uh, to fly this airplane, like I flew it uh, day before yesterday for the first time since we've 
gone through the whole restoration and uh, did a, just a run in to make sure the fly in over the golf course and everything's going to go well. And it just it was I mean, that's what I was thinking about was the history of this airplane and where it was 75 years ago and what they were doing. It flew over the beaches at 700 feet on the morning of June 6, 1944. <sighs> 700 feet, you're a sitting duck. Yeah. And the fact that we have the airplane and it didn't get shot down is amazing in itself. And imagine the sound that must have made when oh, they all came across. Oh. You know, 14,000 Canadians took place on the June 6th activities. Uh, 1,074, uh, there were 1,074 casualties. 359 young Canadians didn't get off the beach yeah. uh, and didn't come home. And and just thinking of that and then thinking the number of Allied sorties that were flowing, like there were over 7,000 aircraft yeah. flying in and around that area. So it was just amazing to uh, all, and, you know, the ships, uh, there were ships from, uh, from, you know, from as far as the eye could see. And I heard one veteran say that if he'd ever had to walk home across the English Channel, he probably wouldn't have got wet because he could have stepped from ship to ship to ship. Wow. <laughs> and what's it like to meet these people? It's an honor. It's an absolute honor. We we had uh, our five D-Day veterans here on Saturday night. One was a member of the French Underground. Uh, we had we had sailors, we had airmen and soldiers, and to talk to them, and uh, just to to realize what an experience it was. Richard Romer, who was born in Hamilton, uh, 19 years old, flying a P-51 uh, recon- photo reconnaissance over the beaches and reporting back uh, intelligence back to the Allies. Uh, now 95, and and uh, wow. he, he addressed the crowd and spoke, and to meet and spend some time with these people, it was such an honor to say thank you, to, to have a chance to meet them and say thank you once again. Hmm. Unbelievable. Um, how do you, the Dakota and the Lancaster, how do you, how do you pick a favorite? Well, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, uh, and the B twenty five because the B twenty five has the invasion stripes on it, and it flew. Canadians, uh, it's a ninety eight Royal Air Force squadron air uh, colors, but that squadron was manned by Canadians, and it flew on D Day, mm-hmm. and 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 the Lancaster VRA four nineteen squadron Royal Canadian Air Force. The actual VRA took off at 2 o'clock in the morning on the 6th of June and dropped armament back on the uh, roads and bridges back behind the beachhead to to uh, make it difficult for the Third Reich to send in reinforcements once the invasion started. So all three airplanes had, had roles uh, on D-Day, hmm. and uh, to fly them all together is, is spectacular uh, to to be able to say which one's your, you know, which one would yeah. you favor? I don't think I could say that. I, I, I like them all. So what happens tomorrow? Well, tomorrow, uh, the Air Force uh, Eight Wing uh, at Canadian Forces Base Trenton will come in uh, about eight thirty tomorrow morning. They'll bring in two Hercules J model aircraft from Four Three Six Squadron, which is Canucks Unlimited, uh, and then they'll bring in. Uh, a uh, the Polaris, the CC-150 Polaris, which is the A310, the same kind of airplane you'll see the Prime Minister flying around in occasionally when he's going overseas. Mm-hmm. And then they'll bring in the Globemaster, the uh, Boeing Globemaster, which is a large, large four-engine transport airplane, all based in Trenton with uh, 436, 437, and 429 squadrons. They'll all come here at 8.30 tomorrow morning, land at the airport. We'll come in and have a full briefing at 9 o'clock for all crews about the actual fly paths and timings and altitudes and all the different uh, things that you need to talk about and separation and uh, spacing and radio frequencies, all the things you need to be able to do this. And then uh, we'll go through that. Then we'll have a quick bite to eat. 
We'll walk out to our airplanes at about 11.15, do our pre-flight inspections. We'll start about 11.35. We'll be over Caledonia, which is our starting place or what we call our holding point. Right. Uh, and we'll leave uh, Caledonia to make 12.10 over the 10th tee and flagpole at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. I'm getting... And it'll be Seven airplanes in succession. I'm gonna. I'm getting shivers up my spine just thinking about this. So there's going to be seven of them. Seven, seven, and uh, you know, and it's the first time ever in the history of the PGA they're actually stopping tournament play hmm. uh, for this fly pass to go uh, over in honor of the of D Day and the 75th anniversary. And it's it's the first time we've done something that big with uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force as well, and. Me being an ex uh, Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, and and some of our pilots having served in the Air Force, uh, it you know there's a, a an element of comfort and uh, understanding and professionalism between us, which is really nice to have, uh, and that's because we have that experience being in the Air Force and serving the country as well. So, it's just a, it's an honor to be part of it. It's an honor to put it together and and to represent and to say thank you to our veterans for the freedom and the way of life we have today, which uh, they paid for at far too high a cost sometimes. Unbelievable. Uh, how did this come about? How did this even get organized? Well, it all started, <laughs> you know, the gala, we, we were planning the gala over a year ago. And uh, when we started planning the gala, uh, in, in those planning meetings, uh, of course, being the 100th anniversary of the Canadian Open at the Hamilton Gulf and Country Club, and being the first right. day of the round, being the, 70, the actual 75th anniversary hmm. of D-Day, we were going to do a fly past over the city anyways in the schools, which is the other thing we're going to do. Uh, maybe right. not with the, the RCAF assets, but certainly with our three uh, World War II airplanes. And we start talking about it, and um, one of our honorary chairman, or not honorary, our, chairman, our vice chairman of the board here at the museum is an honorary colonel as well in the Rockane mm-hmm. Air Force, and he was mentioning that, and one thing led to another, and the next thing, the Royal Canadian Air Force said, you know, we want to be part of this. We want to say thank you, too. We want to we want to look back and recognize that D-Day 75 years ago, and we want to join you. And, and we have a great relationship with Trenton because 424 Squadron, City of Hamilton Squadron, right. 436 Squadron, we have a DC-3, the Burma Star, which is a 436 Squadron, and we have the the Dakota, which is a 437 squadron airplane. So we have airplanes that represent them today. And 429 squadron, the big Globemaster squadron, uh, they flew lengths in the war. So we, we have a tremendous bond and, and fellowship with them. And uh, so we're just glad that we're, we're going to be able to do this. So if in Hamilton tomorrow, you look up around noon, you're going to see quite a show. Uh, I would say it's going to be a real show, and it's going to be an honor of uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And, uh, and we used to say sometimes in the Air Force, you'll see aluminum overcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's great. All right, 12:10 tomorrow over the Canadian Open. Seven planes coming out of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, including uh, the Dakota, the B29, and uh, of course the Lancaster. And uh, you'll hear them. You'll see them. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, Dave, absolutely. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for sharing the stories with us again. Good luck and have fun with everything you're doing tomorrow around the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum and the 75th uh, anniversary. Of D-Day. Congratulations and thank you. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Adrian Midwood uh, from Plastics uh, from Plastic Oceans. Uh, Adrian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, Adrian, Plastic Oceans, what is it? 
We are a global organization that is building awareness and fostering solutions towards waste plastics. So uh, this problem that we have now with plastics, is this an issue of us not taking care of our own garbage or is this an issue of the recycling industry is changing in the countries that once uh, wanted this stuff now don't want it anymore? Uh, yeah, it's, it's part of everything there. I mean, I think over in these first world countries like Canada and America, we're a bit complacent. We've gone into this convenience culture and, you know, have recycling bins and it, it feels all nice and fuzzy to put it in a blue bin and send it away thinking we've done our part. But we've just seen the reality recently, uh, these containers in the Philippines and Malaysia being sent back to us. There's not actually anywhere for it to go. Uh, China as well stopped taking our country's recyclables about a year and a half ago which puts more demand on us to either minimize or locally process our waste. So as I heard your intro there, I mean, if we just minimize our footprint, that's step one, right? If we actually reduce the amount of plastics we use every single day, it will reduce the issue. But we do need to look at actually um, processing it properly and not just shipping it off to somebody else to deal with. So with this story with the Philippines, is this about a country who no longer uses this? Or is this a country that, you know, you said you were going to send us this and said you sent us garbage? Yeah, so that's, you know, it's a double thing there. I mean, whoever the operator was, and it, you know, it, it wasn't actually the government of Canada, though we've, we've yeah. borne a lot of that blame. It was mm-hmm. a private operator who was contracted to take recyclables and garbage. They put, I think it was 100 containers and sent it over yeah. to them of just household garbage or, or contaminated uh, plastics. So it's not like, I mean, they really just provided a service for us over there. And, you know, there are standards with taking recycling. It has to be non-contaminated of certain types, separated. And, uh, yeah, whoever the contractor was just filled up these containers and sent them away. And now Canada wears the blame. Yeah, which seems odd because, as you said, it's private companies that are importing and exporting this. Um, uh, obviously, bad plastic. They sent over stuff that they that they didn't need or that they couldn't use. Is this industry policed enough? Is it? Uh, are, are because in, in a sense, uh, I can see where private industry is, uh, you know, needed to 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 carry out these sorts of uh, industries. But on the other hand, with it being waste, shouldn't it somehow be monitored? It should be. I mean, to tell you the 100% truth, I'm fairly ignorant on the different... I mean, it's a big country, right? You know, there's going to be different rules in each municipality, each province. So it's it's really hard to say. I don't know exactly which municipality it came from. So it's going to be policed differently, but there should be some sort of standard nationwide. Um, the thing is, though, is we, there are local processing technologies available. You know, we don't, we shouldn't be sending containers halfway across the world for somebody else to deal with. We we can invest here locally and have it turned into a second life product that we use every single day. Um, we've also got solutions emerging in other countries where we can take contaminated plastics and upcycle it into a circular economy second life product. So that's what these things like. China um, refusing our waste and the Philippines not being able to recycle contaminated waste is we've, as a world, been forced into finding solutions. And they are starting to come out. Um, Let's talk about those options. Stats I'm reading now, 2016, 3.3 million tons of plastic ended up in the trash. That's 12 times the amount of the plastic 
that was recycled. Um, it's amazing how we've been disciplined to use uh, the blue and green boxes and such. Um, as you said, people, people, I, I assume, think as soon as this stuff goes into a recycling bin that they are doing their part. Uh, really, we're not even making a dent here, are we? No, uh, we aren't. I mean, only you know, less than 10% even gets recycled. And then of that 10% that goes to be recycled, even a lower number gets put into a Second Life product. So, you know, we've had this training. We've got this domestic recycling system across the country, which is great. Um, we pay high taxes for it, which, you know, should be a service that we expect is going to be full circle. But the reality is that it actually doesn't work. It's, a, you know, recycling is not the answer. Uh, you know what? I think you just hit the nail on the head right there, uh, Adrian. It's 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 uh, you know you hear that Canadian the Canadian plastics industry dwarfs the recycling industry. It's just in the end cheaper to produce a new product than it is to recycle. So are really we chasing our tail here? Should what we be doing is. Um, uh, it's just using less, starting a campaign to try to get us to use less rather than put it in a different bin. 100%, and I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I mean, one of our main things that we have as a personal engagement opportunity is providing people with the alternatives to single-use plastics. So while we wait for these bans that um, are mentioned a lot, you know, we, uh, the, and just to let you know, the reason that we haven't seen these bans come into place is because the Canadian plastics industry sued the city of Victoria. So the city of Victoria that was the first one to be putting it in, writing the template for everyone else to copy, is actively being sued by the Canadian Plastics Association. Why is that? Because if we stop using their products, they go out of business. So, I mean, that's how big our fight is. You know, plastic is made from oil. So when we go into reduction programs or alternatives, we're fighting big oil. So it's not an easy industry to go against. Uh, that being said, it, it seems that, you know, we could make uh, a, a dent in our environmental concerns without making that much of a big dent in industry. I mean, no? Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. It, it comes down to it's a false economy to be producing these cheap items that are throwaway and end up uh, doing so much harm as, as all the science is there to back up. You know, the amount of effort it took us just last Saturday in Toronto to clean up only 200 pounds of trash yeah. in a place that has hundreds of bins and hundreds of recycling bins and garbage bins and 72 people on a Saturday to come out to just pick up just shy of 200 pounds. It's a false economy, right? So we don't, we might think that it's cheaper to produce these items and, you know, make it convenient for people to have their packaging there. But we have to, and a lot of it just is going back to what we did 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, um, you know, just being a little bit more responsible and not so convenient. So you talk about what we did 20, or sorry, 30, 40 years ago. What did we do? We used glass? Yeah, glass. We used paper bags. You know, we used the glass and paper. containers. Yeah. We washed our dishes and our single-use cutlery. You yeah, know, we, yeah. It's, um, the thermos, it's all those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what about if we do use or go back to more glass? or paper bags. Uh, glass, uh, easily, more easily recycled. Uh, paper bags can, can decompose. Uh, are we making a bigger footprint by going that way? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of impact assessments that need to be done. I think a lot of has been done out there, but we also know plastic's footprint on the long term is just more detrimental. So, 
you know, I'd say reusable is, is really the way forward. Um, we don't want to think, you know, we're going to have a big footprint on forestry if we're going back to paper. And as well, as soon as they get wet, you know, that all your items can drop out of there. Yeah. It's not hard to get a reusable organic cotton bag. And, um, you know, you're going to reuse that a bunch of times. A lot of the bags that are being sold as reusable in grocery stores are still made of plastics that do degrade. Yeah, and I noticed that. I noticed that, yeah. So we, we want people to focus on more natural linens for that side. And that's why our shopping kit has a natural linen bag, and then it has produce bags. So if people think about how many times they grab that single-use bag to put their carrots or apples in, or even going to the bulk food section, they think they're reducing waste, but they're taking a single-use plastic bag yeah. to put their bulk food in. So it's all these little steps. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd say with glass, there's there's hurdles, right? I mean, it, yeah. it does weigh more with, yeah. with shipping. Yeah. And it still does need to be processed at some point. I mean, soda stream. Look at that. It's great. I mean, it's in your house. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you can make all your sodas there. Yeah. You can, they taste great. Uh, and you're just reducing all of that waste, whether it's tin or glass, and there's no shipping and carbon footprint involved. Just We have the technology on whether it's local processing of waste or alternatives. People just need to embrace them. So um, what, are our, what are our options for disposing of plastics? Like, what, what is the future? I mean, you know, people have talked about burning it for energy, but then you're polluting by burning it. How do you get rid of it? So talking about those options, so some of the waste that we just collected in Toronto has gone over to the University of Guelph for a test facility that's going to be not necessarily burning it. It is going at a high temperature, but all the noxious chemicals are captured, and then it's being turned into a sim gas, which... A lot of, uh, most of Canada has a natural gas line coming to the house for right. heating, for cooking, and that can go directly into that pipeline as a dilutant, you know? So mm. plastic is made from oil, it's a combustible material, and this is a technology that is available today. You know, it's, it's commercialized, it's scalable, and that's something that can go into Fortis here in BC, it can go into Enbridge, and if we, all we do is just send our plastics there, we're not, now not exporting it. It's mm-hmm. locally processed. It creates jobs. The money's already there for um, you know waste processing and collection and such. We just need to send it in the right direction. So there are options for for disposing of it, burning of it, per se. Yeah. So I mean, I hate saying the uh, shy away from the, the the word burning because we actually are using it. Right. You know, and um, all the chemicals are being captured. It does require energy to do that. Mm-hmm. It also requires energy to ship it overseas and make yeah. somebody else's problem. Exactly. So if we start looking at that full cycle, I mean, I worked with um, gasifying certain types of plastics to alternative diesel. And if you look at that energy conversion, you're actually gaining 10 units of energy every time you change one kilogram of plastic to one liter of fuel. Hmm. So we do, you know, we're, now we're not taking virgin resources out of the ground to make more of this natural gas or more of this right. diesel. We've already got, it's already been taken out of the ground. It's been made into something that we, mm-hmm. it served its purpose, but we can repurpose it. And if we turn it into syngas, we turn it into alternative fuels, it means it's gone from our environment. It can't go into the ocean. It can't go into our waterways. You know, if we turn it into second life products, which we've learned is expensive, it's cheaper to make new materials. Yeah. If we're going to have this convenience culture, I say we just get rid of it out of our environment and turn it into something that we use every day. What if we had spent all the money doing on, on a projects like this, you know, taking it and somehow refining it and using it for energy in some way? 
and, and as you said, capturing gases so it's not polluting. What if we had put our, uh, the, all the money that we'd put into recycling and blue boxes into that? Would we be farther ahead today? I think we would be a lot farther ahead. And um, we do have the proof of concepts done. These are all through partners, right? We don't manage. We're just aligned yep. with certain people that have um, great facilities and have got the you know executive summaries. And like I was saying, we have a test facility partner that's actually at the University of Guelph, and they're processing waste we collected last week. So they've been working on this for years. You know, there's a lot of – it's all there. It's all turnkey. I mean, right now, I know Halifax's waste, waste recycling is just sitting on the, the wharf and overflowing into the ocean. So – yeah, we we should invest into something here. So, what is the biggest single contributor to this? Many have said it: water bottles, um, plastic bags. If we could get rid of one, what would it be? Of something? Oh, you make me pick one. <laughs> what is I the mean, biggest single thing? I yeah, mean, you can lump it into a category if you want. I'd say single use items is the biggest one, right? So, plastic is a great invention. It's very versatile. So, any single use plastic. Yeah, if we can get rid of PET bottles, single-use plastic bags, including produce bags, not just the ones you get at checkout. Um, you know, cutlery, if we start looking at those numbers, I mean, there's 40 billion takeout can, uh, utensils produced a year yeah. that people use a reusable cutlery. How do you do it with not... something like takeout, though? So for takeout, um, we, our travel kit has a bamboo cutlery set, and that just goes in your glove compartment or in your backpack. And you just pull it out every time. Yeah, and then you yeah. just wash it when you get home. I mean, like again, it's not rocket science. We know how to wash dishes. Yeah, um, it's in a in a nice little pouch. Um, and how much you know, fast we, food do we eat with our hands? <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, you know, there's also over 500 billion single-use coffee cups that are added to our landfills annually. Yeah. And everyone in Canada probably has a keep cup or a takeaway cup, but people aren't using them and taking them with them everywhere because they don't want to carry it. So get a collapsible cup that fits in your pocket. You know, it's um, it's simple steps on reduction. What about the water bottle, the plastic water bottle? Well, I'm not a big fan. I don't. I, I mean, mean, you know, like I remember when we would never see these, and then all of a sudden they just exploded. It was uh, it was really uh, you know, um, an entitled thing to get bottled water, right? Yeah. Remember Evian and, and yeah, all you're that, right, but... you're right. It was almost sold like a luxury item. Exactly. And yeah. The thing that's is, right. we have filtered water. We, you know, you can. It, I don't think there's any excuse in, in a first world nation to be drinking bottled water. That's a full convenience yeah. side. Marketing did its job. We got sold. People engaged. You know, just get a stainless steel reusable water bottle, a couple different sizes. You're actually going to save money. You know, you're not, and you also don't have to deal with that waste. Good point. If we people want to find out more, where can we go, Adrian? PlasticOceans.ca. PlasticOceans.ca. Adrian Midwood has been with us. A report on the plastic industry shows that the actual industry dwarfs in size uh, compared to that that recycles uh, what comes out of it. Uh, Thanks so much for the time, Adrian. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.